This e-multiple sclerosis review program is presented by DKB Med Radio. One of the major unmet needs in MS is that we, we really have nothing that reliably slows progression in patients who do not have active inflammatory disease. And a big part of that is that the biological processes that drive non-inflammatory progression are distinct from those that drive relapses. Clinical considerations for in-development MS treatments. Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. What drives disease progression in patients with smoldering inflammation? What's in the therapeutic pipeline that's showing promise in slowing neurodegeneration? Can extended interval dosing regimens help prevent PML? These are some of the questions we'll be discussing with today's special guest, E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Program Director, Dr. Michael Kornberg from the Department of Neurology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. For Dr. Kornberg's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, eMultipleSclerosisReview.org, and select the Volume 4, Issue 10 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Kornberg, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in with our first learning objective. Discuss the mechanisms and potential roles of therapy of emerging and in-development treatments, particularly for patients with non-inflammatory progressive MS. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Kornberg, with a patient scenario. So first, we're going to discuss a 52-year-old man with MS who presents for follow-up. He had an initial episode of optic neuritis at age 37, and treatment was initiated at that time with glutamic acetate. He had two subsequent relapses, including an episode of transverse myelitis, causing residual right hemiparesis at age 45, which led to a switch in therapy to dimethylfumarate. He has remained radiologically stable since switching to dimethylfumarate, although he has noted slow worsening of his gait and right-sided strength over the past several years. He asked whether a change in treatment or any new or emerging therapies might slow his progression. At this point, doctor, how would you characterize the state of his MS? So this is a, a patient who has experienced slow worsening of, of symptoms that were residual from a prior attack, but without experiencing any new clinical relapse or any new lesions on MRI. So assuming that surveillance imaging was performed of both the brain and spinal cord, I would characterize this patient as having inactive secondary progressive MS. This is also sometimes called non-inflammatory progression or relapse-independent progression. And we see this scenario frequently in patients who have progressive forms of MS, either primary progressive MS or secondary progressive MS. What should clinicians be aware of when considering the choice of disease-modifying therapies for this patient? So the important point here is that currently approved therapies have not shown benefit for non-inflammatory progression, which is the category that this patient falls into. As long as someone has active inflammatory disease, which means that they're forming new lesions on MRI or they've had new clinical relapses, then escalating therapy has a role. But one of the major unmet needs in MS is that we, we really have nothing that reliably slows progression in patients who do not have active inflammatory disease. And a big part of that is that the biological processes that drive non-inflammatory progression are distinct from those that drive relapses. 
And so current therapies target the peripheral immune system, and they either prevent activation of immune cells outside the brain, or they prevent those activated immune cells from getting into the brain. In patients in this stage of disease who have non-inflammatory progression, the peripheral immune system no longer seems to play a major role. And instead, there are distinct immunologic and non-immunologic processes that, that drive progression. On the one hand, we see chronic inflammation that is compartmentalized within the brain, meaning that we no longer have a leaky blood-brain barrier, but we have chronic activation of cells called macrophages and microglia within the brain, something we call smoldering inflammation that's not targeted by current therapies. At the same time, there's neurodegeneration that happens simply from having chronic demyelination over a long period of time. So these nerve cells in the brain that are missing their myelin coating, that myelin is important to help them transmit signals, but it also provides nutrients, what we call trophic support, that keep those nerve cells healthy over time. And so simply from missing that myelin coating and those nutrients for years and years, these nerve cells can degenerate over time. So just to clarify, doctor, Given the state of his disease, specifically the lack of inflammatory activity, which would include relapses and new lesions, none of the currently available therapies would provide clear additional benefit. Is that correct? That's correct. So with that as background, let's go directly to the question he's asked you. Are there any therapies currently in development that might help him? So there are many therapies at various stages of development that we hope will slow non-inflammatory progression. I would like to focus on just a few examples that are furthest along in testing and that I think currently hold the most promise. One of these classes, for which I at least have some cautious optimism, are the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or BTK inhibitors. There are several of these that are currently in clinical trials for both relapsing MS as well as non-relapsing MS in patients that have non-inflammatory progression. And these drugs include evobrutinib, fenibrutinib, and tolibrutinib. And the phase two trial for telibrutinib was highlighted in the newsletter that was associated with this podcast. So the interest in BTK inhibitors really comes from the fact that they penetrate the blood-brain barrier and the cells that they target. So on the one hand, BTK inhibitors target B cells, which is not entirely novel. That's how anti-CD20 therapies work. However, BTK inhibitors also modulate the function of cells called macrophages and microglia, which are thought to play a role in the compartmentalized smoldering inflammation that we see in progressive phases of disease. And because several of these agents cross the blood-brain barrier, there is some hope that they might actually have an impact on, on slowing progression. And as I mentioned, several of these drugs are in phase two or three clinical testing, including studies that are specifically focused on people with non-inflammatory progression. And so that is, is certainly something that I have interest in and, and, and keeping an eye on. Another therapy of interest to me is abutilast. So this is a drug that has several targets, but one thing we know about it is that it also can modulate those macrophages and microglia that are involved in chronic inflammation. And there was a recent phase two trial in patients with progressive MS that showed that abutilast slowed brain atrophy over six months, which we hope is a biomarker for slowing that neurodegeneration that we see at this stage of the disease. And as was highlighted in the newsletter associated with this podcast, this was driven primarily by patients with progressive MS. 
And so I'm certainly hoping that this is going to progress into a, a phase three study in a similar patient population. And I have some cautious optimism about its chances to help patients like this. Other therapies under development to promote myelin repair or stem cell therapies for remyelination. Do your patients ask you about those? So this is a very frequent question from my patients. And treatments that promote remyelination and repair with the goal of slowing progression, but also reversing disability is a major unmet need in MS and, and a major focus of research. What's the current status of that research? I would say that remyelinating therapies are not as far along in clinical development as those that might slow progression in other ways. Within the past several years, we unfortunately had a major disappointment with a phase two trial of a drug called opacinumab. This was the affinity trial, which failed to meet its primary endpoints and, and therefore its development was discontinued. There have been several other therapies that have shown some promise in early studies, but my view is that many of these studies were really more proof of concept rather than identifying feasible candidates for therapy, either because the efficacy of these therapies was relatively low and could only be seen with very sensitive biomarkers, or because of the, the risks and side effect profiles of these drugs. So that includes drugs such as clemestine and vexorotine. There is certainly interest in regenerative stem cell therapies, as you mentioned, but these are quite far from the clinic, in my view. And these come in several varieties. One of the biggest interests is in what we call mesenchymal stem cells. But at this point, there are many, many uncertainties in terms of how we, we should harvest these cells, how they need to be treated, how they can be delivered. And so far, the, the early clinical studies have been very mixed at best. On the other hand, what I would say is that our understanding of why remyelination fails in MS patients is growing exponentially, both through clinical studies as well as preclinical studies and animal models. And so we're constantly identifying new targets and getting a lot more shots on goals, as I would say. And so I'm optimistic about what the next five to 10 years will bring. But unfortunately, we're still a ways away from remyelinating drugs making it to the clinic. Thank you for discussing this case with us, Dr. Kornberg. Let's review our conversation as it applies to our learning objective, discuss the mechanisms and potential roles in therapy of emerging and in-development treatments, particularly for patients with non-inflammatory progressive MS. What are the most important things our listeners need to know? Well, the first key point is that our current disease-modifying therapies really are designed to prevent inflammatory disease activity, meaning relapses, and new MRI lesions, but none of them convincingly slow non-inflammatory progression. The second point is that there are several therapies that potentially target non-inflammatory progression that are in late stages of clinical testing. Among the most promising, in my view, are BTK inhibitors and the butylast, which target the cells, macrophages, and microglia that we think contribute to the compartmentalized smoldering inflammation that drives progressive disease. The third point is that remyelinating therapies, although there is much progress being made in terms of identifying targets, still unfortunately remain farther from clinical practice. Finally, a fourth point I would make is that although patients should certainly be counseled about the exciting therapies on the horizon, they should also be cautioned regarding the limitations of these therapies. 
And most importantly of all, they should be cautioned against pursuing any of these experimental treatments outside of the realm of regulated clinical studies. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Michael Kornberg from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. I want to take a brief time out here to ask all our listeners a simple question about your CME CEU credits. Do you have all you need? Because it's not too late to access the credits still available without charge from eMultiple Sclerosis Review. Whether you need to know more about how to develop effective shared decision-making or better understand the clinical challenges of managing special populations like pediatric or aging MS patients, or increase your ability to personalize DMT selection to a patient's specific needs, you can connect to expert clinical advice and analysis on the eMultiple Sclerosis Review website. Just go to emsreview.org and choose the newsletters and podcasts that interest you. All our MS programs are accredited for nurses as well as physicians and are provided without charge to access or to obtain credit. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or whichever service you get your podcasts and webcasts, please rate and review us. Because the more listeners we have, the more programs we can provide. Thank you. And now, back to our program. Welcome back. Our guest is E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Program Director, Dr. Michael Kornberg from the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins. We've been talking about the potential roles of emerging and in-development treatment, particularly for patients with non-inflammatory progressive MS. Let's turn now to our second learning objective. Describe the evidence surrounding novel extended interval dosing regimens of current infusion therapies, including natalizumab and ocrelizumab. With that as our focus, if you would please, Dr. Kornberg, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. Okay, so now we're going to discuss a 38-year-old woman with relapsing remitting MS who comes for follow-up. She was diagnosed five years earlier at age 33, following two severe clinical events that occurred within one year. The first was optic neuritis associated with no light perception at nadir, and the second was a brainstem syndrome that caused diplopia and ataxia. Treatment was initiated with natalizumab every four weeks, which led to rapid control of her MS. Fortunately, she recovered well from her attacks and has remained stable on natalizumab ever since. Although she remains seronegative for JC virus antibodies, she's concerned about the long-term risk of PML, but also hesitant to switch from natalizumab. I would suspect this is a fairly common concern, fear of a devastating side effect from an effective long-term MS treatment. This patient's been on natalizumab for five years now. What does the evidence say about the risk of PML in patients like this one? So PML certainly is probably the biggest concern for patients and doctors alike. So the risk of PML is primarily impacted by three factors, and that is someone's JC virus antibody status, the duration of treatment with natalizumab, and any prior treatment with immunosuppressants. And so the good news is that we do have quite a bit of information about how to risk stratify these patients. And so as long as a patient remains seronegative for JC virus antibodies, the risk of PML remains extremely low for at least six years, but likely for as long as they remain seronegative. And a lot of this data comes from a 2017 meta-analysis of four large studies that estimated the risk of PML at less than 1 in 10,000 in seronegative individuals, essentially indefinitely over time. For patients that have JC virus 
antibodies, particularly those who are high titer antibody seropositive, the risk quickly becomes unacceptable. It remains low within the first year of treatment, but by year six, it rises as high as one in 100, which clearly is unacceptable. The risk is further increased by any prior immunosuppressant use. And an important point there is that prior use of immunosuppression makes the JC virus antibody testing less reliable. And so I generally avoid natalizumab in anyone with prior immunosuppressant use. And the risk can be further stratified, not just by JC virus antibody positive or negative status, but also by what's called their antibody index with a risk cutoff of 0.9, such that patients with an index below 0.9 are still at low risk. Although I do urge that caution must be used when considering antibody index, particularly for patients who are close to that 0.9 cutoff. But most importantly, particularly for those patients who remain seronegative, it's critically important to periodically recheck their antibody status because people can seroconvert over time. So this should be done at least every six months. But in my practice, I like to do this every three months. Let me ask you a what if about this patient, doctor. Let's say that even though she understands that her PML risk is currently low, she's still concerned about long-term risk. And she's pretty adamant that she's not going to change her successful therapy. What options are available for alternative natalizumab dosing? Would that be safer for her? What does the evidence say about it? So over the past several years, there have been several studies of extended interval dosing, meaning that natalizumab is infused every five, six, or seven weeks rather than the standard four-week intervals. There have been a number of observational studies that were derived from the TOUCH database. The TOUCH database is a prescribing safety database that's part of Tysabri's risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. And these observational studies have found that extended interval dosing is associated with a substantially decreased risk of PML, even among patients who are JC virus antibody positive, upwards of a 90% decrease in risk of PML, so quite significant. The TOUCH database, unfortunately, does not include any data regarding efficacy, but that has been studied as well. So recently, there was a phase three trial called the NOVA study, which was recently published in Lancet Neurology, that examined radiologic disease activity in just under 500 patients who were randomized either to every four-week or every six-week dosing of natalizumab following one year of stability with standard dosing. And although there were small differences observed between these two groups, this difference was driven entirely by two patients who had multiple confounding factors. One of these patients had disease reactivation after discontinuing natalizumab. The other patient likely had PML, with those lesions being counted as radiologic activity. Outside of those two confounding patients, there were essentially no differences with regard to efficacy between standard interval dosing and extended interval dosing. Let me pose another what-if situation. Let's say this patient becomes JC virus antibody seropositive. How would being on natalizumab with extended interval dosing affect her risk of MS disease activity and PML? Uh, again, what do the data say? With regard to efficacy, we can feel confident that the efficacy of extended interval dosing will likely be similar to standard interval dosing in terms of preventing new relapses or, or new inflammatory disease activity in general. If she were to become seropositive, I think we can feel confident that 
extended interval dosing would lower her risk of PML compared to standard interval dosing and likely substantially. However, we don't know exactly what her risk of PML would be with extended interval dosing. And so I tend to be very cautious and I generally do not feel comfortable continuing JC virus seropositive patients on natalizumab even with extended interval dosing. But there is going to be some differences of opinion in that regard. I generally do feel comfortable with the efficacy of every six-week dosing. And so I have gotten in the habit of converting many patients over to that regimen if they are seronegative and if they have been stable on standard interval dosing for one year. Thank you, doctor. Now, alternative regimens have also been studied, at least to some extent, with anti-CD20 therapies, including rituximab and ocrelizumab. What's the rationale for considering alternative dosing with these agents, and under what circumstances might you consider it? So the rationale relates primarily to safety and to optimizing immune responses, particularly immune responses to vaccination. This has become a particularly important topic during the COVID-19 pandemic. So anti-CD20 therapies attenuate new antibody production, meaning that vaccination is less likely to produce a robust antibody response in patients on these therapies. But we know that the further a patient is from their anti-CD20 treatment, the more likely they are to produce a robust antibody response to vaccination. And so although these therapies are conventionally dosed every six months, there have been several studies that have suggested that B-cell repopulation occurs much more slowly, and the efficacy against disease activity might be maintained for up to as long as 18 months. And in some of these phase two studies, in addition to maintaining efficacy for a prolonged period of time, the risk of infection, which is particularly a concern in older patients, tended to be lower with less frequent dosing. And so for older patients in whom you're particularly worried about the safety of long-term B-cell depletion, or for those patients in whom you need to optimize a vaccine response, such as during the current COVID-19 pandemic, extended interval dosing is something that can be considered. And this is often accomplished by checking B-cell counts at defined intervals and waiting to redose until you start to see repopulation. But it's very important to say that no randomized trials have been conducted with extended interval dosing of anti-CD20 therapies or ocrelizumab, and this must be weighed when considering this strategy in patients. Thank you for bringing us this case, Dr. Kornberg, and showing us where these what-if paths might lead. Let's wrap things up by returning to our learning objective, the evidence surrounding novel extended interval dosing regimens of current infusion therapies, including natalizumab and ocrelizumab. What should our listeners take away from our case discussion? First, the efficacy and safety of extended interval dosing of natalizumab and anti-CD20 therapies such as ocrelizumab has recently been examined in hopes of improving the safety of these high-efficacy treatments while maintaining efficacy, although these dosing regimens are not FDA-approved. Second, there have been observational studies that have found that dosing natalizumab every six weeks as opposed to every four weeks is associated with substantially lower risk of PML. A third point is that several observational studies, as well as a recent randomized trial, found that every six-week dosing of natalizumab preserved efficacy for the vast majority of patients relative to standard interval dosing. A fourth point is that with anti-CD20 therapies, B-cell depletion typically lasts for longer than six months, as does the beneficial effect of these drugs on relapse risk. 
And finally, a fifth point is that extended interval dosing of natalizumab and anti-CD20 therapies such as ocrelizumab can be considered in individuals who are at higher risk of complication, including older individuals, patients who are considering pregnancy, and also when there are specific concerns about infection risks or need for vaccination. From the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Dr. Michael Kornberg, thank you for joining us in today's eMultiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eMultipleSclerosisReview.dkbmed.com. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and Sanofi Genzyme. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.